reveal himself to you during this time. So this weekend is Memorial Day weekend. But let me ask you another question. And if you have been a pastor on staff or have a former pastor, you're not allowed to answer this question. What is today on the church calendar? Anyone know? It is Pentecost, that's right. 50 is what Pentecost stands for. It is from the Old Testament, the Feast of Weeks in Leviticus chapter 23, that after the Passover, the, the Feast of the Passover, 50 days go by, and then there's the, the offering of the first fruits. And it's fulfilled in the New Covenant, and the coming of the Holy Spirit with power into his church. And that's what we celebrate in Acts chapter 2. How the living God comes to dwell within us. Not just externally outside of us, but within us. And what an amazing thing. And this is not just church trivia. It'll make more sense when we get deeper into the message today. So just remember, today is Pentecost. And that Christ, the Spirit of the living Christ, lives within you if you are in Christ. So, let me ask you this, just dialing things back to yesteryear, growing up, how many of you experienced a fire drill in school? Most everybody, right? In, in my school, Joaquin Miller, it was like this, all the kids get up, we all file out in, in line, you know, we, we get out to the 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 uh, playground, and there's a little marker that your class is supposed to be in, and we make sure everybody gets there and lined up all properly and everyone's accounted for. But here's my question. What is the purpose of a fire drill? The purpose is to know what to do if and when a fire comes and to be ready. To be ready. That is the purpose of a fire drill. And for the church at Corinth, it is not a matter of if, really, rather than when this fire is coming in the person of the Apostle Paul. And he is coming to Corinth for the third time in the full power of his apostolic office, that of being Christ's apostle is bestowed upon him. And whether they have believed in him or taken him seriously or just ignored him, he is coming, and he's coming in the power of Christ. And whether that visit was going to be full of encouragement or full of correction and rebuke was up to them. We've been going through the letter to the second letter of Corinthians. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to open them up to chapter 13. That's where we're going to be today. We're finishing the series today. And while we are not expecting an apostolic visit, the warnings here, the things to take heed of, the questions help us prepare really for our coming fire, our refining fire. That is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And when it happens, there will be no time to change course or make corrections or make adjustments. You are either ready or you're not. And that is the question I'm going to ask throughout this whole sermon. Are you ready? Because if indeed 
the church in Corinth needed to be ready for the coming of the Lord's servant, how much more do we need to be ready for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ himself? So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into this word today. Lord Jesus, you are our hope, you are our Savior, you are our life, and we have no life apart from you. But Lord, there are times where we do stray and we start to look for life apart from you. We start to do our own thing. And that is not what you intended for us, especially your church. So be at work in this passage, be at work in this sermon, and do in us, your people, what you will. Help us as we have, we have sung, make us humble receive what you have for us from your word, the sword of your Holy Spirit. And Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. Now I don't normally say this before a sermon, but I want to tell you there are no accidents. You are here today by God's will and his providence. And today's sermon might be one of the most important sermons I ever preached to you. Not because it'll be my best sermon. You can be the judge afterward, I don't care. But my point is, what is in this passage, and the warnings that are, are you know, we're being called to take into account, they have eternal consequences. But also, the admonitions, they also lead to life. Because the Apostle Paul says, I'm coming, are you ready? And the Lord Jesus himself is telling us, I'm coming, are you ready? So here's the question. Are you ready? Have you dealt with sin? Verses 1 and 2. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. Now I repeat while repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Last week we saw this as we were in chapter 11. That Paul had warned the Corinthians, especially those who had sunk into deep sin, to address those things. And he said in verse 20 of chapter 11, excuse me, chapter 12, I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. And I'm afraid that when I come that my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Now, every sin, every sin is rebellion against God. But these are things Paul has specifically addressed. I know about these things. These things are, are ripping you guys apart, and you need to deal with them. You need to repent of them. You need to turn away from them. They are contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ, your head. But these warnings have been ignored. They've been mocked by some in the church and as, as they've mocked Paul and his apostolic office. They've held him in suspicion and in contempt. And now he says, I'm coming. I'm coming and I'm coming in power. I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. He's going to personally enact church discipline where those who have been warned and are now unrepentant they will be disfellowshipped 
from the church. Example would be in the first letter to Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 9. A man who's living with his father's mother, uh, father's, his father's wife. Disassociated from that person because he is not repentant. None will be disfellowshipped by mere gossip or mere hearsay. He follows the Old Testament principle in Deuteronomy 18. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. But I'm coming. I'm coming to you who made a mockery of sin, mockery of my, of my office as an apostle, mockery of Christ and what he has come to do. He went to the cross for your sins. And you've made a mockery of it by not repenting. A Christ who came to bring salvation and transformation. But for all the severity that Paul is going to bring, how much more the severity of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you may go, okay, Pastor, I kind of get what you're saying, but I really don't see it in this passage. And, and you would be right. You would be right, but it is a part of the message of this letter. I'm going to kick back to chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You see, the letter is inspired, all of it together. And they, by the way, they read it all in one meeting not breaking it apart. The chapter verses and those things, they're there for our convenience, so we know where to find it. But much like last week's message, too many of us, we fail to take sin seriously. Our actions and attitudes we know are in contrast with that of Christ, but we put it off. Maybe we put it off repentance for the future. It's kind of like what I experienced when I was serving in Santa Barbara. I was a, visiting a Christian college, talking to a college student. And he very seriously looked me in the eye and says, yeah, I know my drinking and my womanizing, that's contrary to Christ. And I'll get more serious about Jesus when I graduate. But he's putting that off because he was enjoying his season of sin, if you will. Or... Maybe those who just say, well, you know, Jesus died. He paid it all. What does it matter? I mean, why, why am I working for this? It's like, Jesus did it. He's my sin credit card. How does that sound? It's contrary to what Jesus intended. Let me be clear. I don't want you to hear anything of a, of a salvation that comes through our works, our being good enough. It is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that only, Him on the cross, that pays for our sin. But we need, to, we need to know that Jesus came to free us from sin, not give us freedom to sin. And that's what the Apostle Paul would say in his letter to the Romans in chapter 21, I mean, chapter 6 and verse 21 and then in verse 23. He says, why do you want to continue in those things you are now ashamed of? Those things, they lead to death. You keep 
entering into sin, and those things lead to death in your relationships, in your life. And then later on in the same chapter, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Jesus came to set you free from that, not to give you permission to do it because it's just death. And secondly, secondly, continuing in sin leads to a hard heart. How many of you have been part of the hard heart, soft heart conversations in the Iwana council time, right? When we continue in sin, we develop a hard heart. It's what the author of Hebrews says. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. To continue in sin is to develop a hard heart and to be deceived by sin. That's why there needs to be repentance. And of course, we're not talking about perfection because none of us can do that. But a heart of repentance to turn away. And when we do stumble, and we will stumble, it's going to happen. To confess and to repent, to take God up in His Word in 1 John 1, 9, and He says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness but we are repenting we are saying you know what god i know i'm out of order i know i'm heading down the wrong path forgive me change me make me the man make me the woman who is more like christ because the visit of an apostle might have been distressful christ's return for some will be dreadful Jesus will say in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father, who fails to take Jesus' words seriously. Not only to put their faith in him, but to take his words seriously. To live for him rather than for self. In this same letter, chapter 5, verse 15, And he died for all, speaking of Jesus Christ, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. If that passage is not underlined in your Bible, it should be. I'm going to reference it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. And so I want to ask the question, are you ready? Or are you holding on to some sort of sin that you just don't want Jesus to have a hold of? Here's an opportunity to repent. Say, Lord Jesus, and maybe you even say, I don't even have the strength to let go of this. That's okay. Just come to him and say, Lord, I, I need you. I need you to release me from this because I am stuck to this. But that thing is causing death in your life. And Jesus wants to give you life within that. Are you ready for his return? Are you ready for his return to discern Christ's power? Verse 3. Since now you're demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. 
For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. Again, Paul saying, look, I know the gospel that I preach to you, Christ in him, cruci- in him crucified, I know for some of you, that looks like weakness to you. That is what the world thinks of that, according to the world's standard. The Son of God, crucified in re- weakness, and yet he was raised by the power of God. And as Christ's apostle, Paul may seem weak according to this world, yet in Christ, the life he lives is in the power of the crucified and risen Christ. And he says, when I come, that power is going to be displayed. Number one, in discipline. As he said, he's not going to spare anyone. It acted, and it will not be powerless. It's not just going to be, you're out of here, dude. There are going to be spiritual consequences when that takes place. He's coming in Christ's power. And even when Paul is not there, because Christ is the head of his church, that discipline is going to still come in power. Again, back to the first letter to the Corinthians. You may be familiar with this. In chapter 11 of of that letter, they're talking about the Lord's Supper. And people, in their selfishness, are getting drunk, and they are excluding others from a love feast and a meal and during the Lord's Supper, and it is contrary to what Christ has come to bring. And so he says in that, verse 30 of chapter 11, that is why many among you are weak and are sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we are more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. There's discipline taking place in Christ's church, even in the midst of, of this Lord's Supper. Jesus' power is being shown there. Christ's power in disciplining his body. And you know what? I don't like, I don't like church discipline. It's not fun. I've been a part of it a few times. It feels yucky. But at the end of the day, Christ is at work, and he's doing things to make his church healthy. In the last five years, in the just just big American church. God has been cleaning house in a lot of churches. There have been some high-profile leaders whose double lives have come into the light and been exposed, and those men have been removed. And I say that with no glee, with no self-satisfaction in that. In fact, I, it makes me sad because number one, it puts a black eye on, on the kingdom of Christ. I don't like it. And I know also some of those men actually have ministered to me. But they got proud. And they were living a double life saying, I can deliver God's word and I can live a double life with an affair or abuse over here. And God is saying, no. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. And he's starting with his leaders, his shepherds, and it works its way on down. Christ's power will reign in his church. He is the head of the church. And if it doesn't happen by earthly leadership, he will do it himself. So Christ, discerning Christ's power in discipline. But listen to me. 
That's the bad news. Here's the good news. That same power of Christ that enacts discipline brings salvation and the power to live the Christian life. Listen to some of these familiar verses that maybe some of us have memorized. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first of the Jew and then to the Gentile. You see, that same power of the crucified Christ is in salvation in our belief in our faith in Him. Or how about this one in this letter, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ... They are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There is a spiritual rebirth that is taking place. And you are being made in the image of Christ, and it is Christ's power. Or Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. We have to be discerning Christ's power, yes, in discipline, but also in salvation and living the Christian life. And so this brings me to the next question. Are you ready by distinguishing your faith? Verse 5 through 9. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. I trust you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray that God, pray to God, that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we do not do anything against the truth, but can only, but can only for the truth. We are glad Whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you will be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh with my authority. The authority of the Lord Jesus, the Lord gave me to build you up, not for tearing down. You know, there's a true phenomenon that has taken place during Paul's time, and it's true today. And it's what I will call unconverted evangelicals. Unconverted evangelicals. The people who believe they are Christians, but they are not born again. They are not born of the Spirit. And this is Paul's call for self-examination. Because the first issue might be they have the wrong object of faith. Here's a great diagnostic question to ask that question. If God were to come to you and say, why should I let you into my heaven? What is going to be your answer? And you'll be surprised at the, at the answers that come from people who go to church, to Bible-believing churches. Number one is, because I go to church. Okay, great. But is, is that what gets you into heaven? Gives you right standing before God? Because I'm in a Bible study. Or I teach Sunday school or Awana. Now, if you teach middle school, that might get you close, but just kidding. Or I'm on a church board. Or even better, because I'm a good person. 
One of my favorite came from a guy in college. Because my grandmother prays for me. Okay, that's great. But God has no grandchildren. You have to come by faith alone in Christ alone. It must be Christ. And in this same letter, and something you hear me say almost every time we take the Lord's Supper, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. On that cross, Jesus takes upon Himself our penalty for our sin to bridge the gap between us and a holy God and then in grace and a great exchange gives us His righteousness. But that only comes by faith. By saying, Jesus, You, You have done for me what I cannot do myself and I put my faith in You. That is my only hope. That is my only solid rock. You are my righteousness. You are my right standing. You are the one who allows me to come into the presence of a holy God in heaven. So number one, make sure you have the right object of faith. Number two, you have the wrong person on the throne. Verse five, do you not realize that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Now again, how does Christ come into you? Is by His Holy Spirit. That is the amazing thing. That when you truly put your faith in Christ, His Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. But here's my fear. Some of us have gone, we know intellectually that Jesus has died and He wants to come and transform us, but we've never allowed Him to take the throne of our heart. We, we know it up here. It has never affected us here. And in truth, we are holding him at arm's length because we don't want him to be in charge. We don't want him to come and change our lives and transform them. In fact, we're afraid of what he might do. So we do not allow him. We want him to be Savior. We do not want him to be Lord. But I'm going to get back to verse 15, chapter 5. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. We're keeping Jesus at arm's length. Yeah, Jesus, I, I like the fact that you died for me, but I'm not going to let you in, let you have any control over my life. That's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to be. And then... Within that, you're asking the question, do you not realize that Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Here's a great test for that. What kind of fruit is being produced? Verse 7 here of our chapter. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Okay, great. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right even though we may have seemed to have failed. Paul's saying, at the end of the day, you know what I'm concerned about? That Christ really does dwell within you. And that you, day in and day out, are being obedient to Him. 
not doing evil, not doing your own thing. And I don't care if people think we failed. That's not my heart's concern. My concern is what's going on inside of you. Does Christ dwell within you? And if the fruit that's coming out of your life is really fruit that this world generates, you need to ask some questions. Has Christ really come in? Have I allowed Him in? Or am I keeping Him at arm's length? Do I, have I even made Him the object of, of my faith? Those are the questions we need to ask. Examine your faith. Is Christ the sole object of that faith? Has He been allowed to sit on your throne of your heart? And is there fruit that is evidence of His presence? And if the answer is no at the end of that, go back to one and two. Is He the sole object of your faith? Is He allowed to sit on the throne of your life? And here's the, here's the thing, people. We're not standing before one another. We're standing before the living God. And if the answer is no, it's better that you realize that now and repent. There's no embarrassment in front of me or anyone else. You are standing before a holy God and you need to respond to Him and hear what He's calling you to do today. There's no mistake that you're here. And it's better to find that out now than to get to the end when Jesus comes and hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Are you ready for His return? Are you ready for His return? Have you allowed Him to come into your life as your Savior and your Lord? The Gospel of John says this in verse 12, to as many as received Him. And by the way, in the verse before, verse 11, there are people that did not receive Him but rejected him. He came to his own, and his own rejected him. They knew him not. They did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you have never said, Jesus, I need you to come into my life. Give me what you have done on the cross and from rising from the dead. And I need to turn to you and put my faith in you. Maybe today is the day where that changes. But second of all, maybe you know these things and you've had a faith, but you kind of have, again, put Jesus at arm's length. And this word comes to us in the letter from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. And she or he and she with me. Are you keeping Jesus outside? Or are you opening up the door and letting him in? And maybe that needs to change today. Maybe you need to say, Lord, I, I receive what you've done. But I've kept you at arm's length and I need you to come in and take control and come and fellowship with me and be my first love. Be the Lord of my life. 
And I just want to stop right now because it's too important just to go on with this message. I've got one more point, but I want to stop right now. And if you need to respond in your heart, I'm going to pray. If you want to pray along with me, that's great. Mine are, are going to be magic words. They're just going to be a sincere heart responding to the living God. But if you just want to pray by yourself, that's fine. And the rest of you be praying that God wants to do holy work in hearts right now. So let's pray for just this moment here. This is for you who, who needs to put your faith in Jesus right now. Lord Jesus, I know that you came and lived a perfect life. I know that you died on the cross for me. I know you that you rose from the dead for me. And I cannot do what it takes to make myself acceptable to you, a holy God. But I want to receive what you have for me. What you came to do for me. So Lord Jesus, I receive you into my heart. Come and do in me what I cannot do. That you paid my penalty upon the cross for my sins. And I ask you to come and transform me. Make me yours. Do your work in my heart, in my life. And help me. <laughs> help me, Lord, to do what I cannot do myself. And I take you at your word that says to as many as believed in him, even to those who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Then you keep your word. So come in and have your way in me. And Lord, maybe there's a person out there that needs to respond right now who has known that you've died for them, but they're keeping you at arm's length. They've locked you out of their heart. Would you give them grace? And, and so if that's you, pray along with me. Lord, I, I ask for your forgiveness. For my sin, for my self-determination, my desire to do my own thing. And I open up my heart to allow you to come in and have your way in me again. And Lord, in those moments where I find that I'm out of sorts with you, would you give me grace to confess? Would you give me grace to repent? Because you've told me that if we confess our sins, you are faithful. You are just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I take you at your word. But come. Come into my heart, Lord, and have your way. May it be your home. That's in your name I pray these things. Amen. Last of all, are you ready? Determined to value unity. Verses 11 and 13. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of peace, God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And all God's people send their greetings. You know, as much strife as Paul had with the Corinthians church, there was so much internal strife going on, it matched it, if not exceeded it. They were a church divided, a body divided, and it was contrary to Christ, contrary to what Jesus intended. They were not valuing each other, and they were not valuing Him who is the head. And so they are admonished to move back towards Christ, and admonished to move back towards one another, the Christ in each one of them. Number one, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice in what? Rejoice in the Lord. 
and all that He has done in making you His child, in His salvation, bringing you into His body, giving you a future and a hope. And there's so much more, but He is the object of our rejoicing. Number two, strive for full restoration. Some have translated that as strive for perfection. Really the word means completion or to be made whole. You see, there was division here in this body, and they were incomplete without each other. They were withholding from each other in competition. And they were trying to one-up each other, rather than to move toward each other and let each other's gifts um, fulfill what Christ wanted to do in them and for them. They need each other. Strive for that full restoration. And then encourage one another. That word literally means to come alongside. To come alongside. That means to come alongside and cheer what Jesus is doing in you, what Jesus is doing in me. That also word means to come alongside to comfort. When pain and hardship comes. And to comfort each other with the comfort of Christ. That's how this whole letter started out in chapter 1, verse 4. The God of all comfort. Be of one mind and live in peace, be unified in Christ, living for His mission, and being, letting His peace reign within how we relate to one another. And then here's the promise. And the God of love and peace will be with you. His presence will indwell God's people within them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This may freak us out a little bit. We don't do that here. And we're not... You know, encouraging someone to be the kissy monster here. That's not what we're saying. It is really showing godly affection for one another. We are family. To maybe put that hand on that shoulder or that hug or whatever, but to be the body to each other and encourage one another with just physical godly affection. That's what's going on here. And then verse 13, And all God's people here send their greetings. When you are in the body of Christ, you are part of something greater than yourself. Greater than Rochester. Greater than America. Greater than North America. The gospel has invaded the whole world and we have brothers and sisters all over the world. You are part of an international brotherhood and sisterhood. A family that extends across this globe. Whether they are out there in public or whether they are in the secret they are family to us. We know some of them in Haiti, in Cuba, in Africa, in Austria, in the Middle East. And there's so much more. It's so much bigger than what we know here in Rochester. And it's so much more eternal as well. As we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses the church eternal. From the Apostle Paul, Peter, Martin Luther, Spurgeon, Billy Graham, Bill Planton. A great cloud of witnesses looking down saying, if you could see what I see, hang in there. Hang in there. He's coming. Hope is coming. But this is a church that is famous for their division. 
famous for their division. What would the Apostle Paul find when he comes? What are we famous for here at Berean? And what will Jesus find in relationship to that? You know what's interesting? One of the things that Jesus says, in as much as you've done it to these, the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. Jesus identifies with his body, with his believers, especially the least of these. How are we being the body? How are we being united? Are we determined to do that? So let me say this in conclusion. Any earthly authority that comes to inspect or check out is really a dress rehearsal for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, are we ready? Are we ready in putting to death those sinful things that we know are contrary to our Lord Jesus Christ? Are we ready in discerning His power? Yes, in discipline, but also in salvation and living the Christian life. Are we distinguishing our faith in that our faith is solely in Christ Jesus and nothing else? And are we determining to value the unity of the body of Christ? Because the living Christ, if you are in Christ, dwells in you. And we have an opportunity to minister to one another. What a great thing. I pray that we'll pay heed to this. Whether we need to own this a great deal or whether we go, okay, I'm, I'm, this is going well. Because the other option is to ignore it. But it's at our own peril because Jesus is coming back whether we're ready or not. And the question is, will you be ready? Let me just say this as I invite the worship team to come up and close us. You know, if and specifically, if you need somebody to help come alongside you in prayer, in repentance, I'm going to be available. Pastor Neil's going to be available back in the corner here. Our elders will be available. And if you're not comfortable, a woman, you're not comfortable talking with a man, my wife would be available to pray with you up here. So, but, I, you know, this is an opportunity to respond to what the living Christ wants to do in you. So we're concluding this good letter with that heart and affirming that we only have hope in him. Let me pray for us and then we'll worship. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for this good word that you put in the heart of the Apostle Paul and even in the, the life and times of the Corinthian church. But here we are now, Lord. And one day you will come and you'll be asking, how have we prepared for your return? We want to be ready. So help us to realize exactly who you are. Help us to take you at your word. And help us to let the Christ in us live in us and through us rather than seeking to do it in our, our own flesh, in our own power, because we cannot, but you can. And so, Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen and amen.